Today on Sharp Scratch, you'll learn what to do if you're feeling clueless in your first CPR event, how one junior doctor ended up giving chest compressions on his very first day, and what kickboxing and CPR have in common. You're listening to Sharp Scratch, episode four, why CPR isn't like what you see on TV. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we get a bunch of medical students, newly qualified doctors and expert guests together in a room to figure out all those things that you really need to know to be a good med student or new doctor, but you can't really learn at medical school. I'm Lara Nunes Mulder, and I'm the editorial scholar at the BMJ, and uh, I'm also a medical student at the University of Cambridge. And with me in the room today, I've got our wonderful guests. You know them already. I've got Declan and Chidera. So would you like to introduce yourselves? Declan, go ahead. So yeah, hi, I'm Declan. Finally, I'm a medical student in Norwich. And Chidera. Hi, I'm in Chidera, and I'm an F1 in northwest London. How are you doing, Chidera? I'm, I'm doing good. I've had more sleep than the last podcast. Um, I've had two full days of not being on nights, so I'm feeling very refreshed. Oh, yeah, of course, because in episode one you said that you had some more nights coming up. Yeah. So you've done, how did they go? I've had my last set. They went a lot better than the first two. I think I was a lot less nervous and more settled, and my I think my sleep pattern did shift slightly. So. That's, <laughs> did that's... you get the blackout blinds? No, but I was just knackered, so it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty reassuring to hear that it gets easier. Um, And also in the room with us today, we've got a wonderful expert guest. We've got the acting CEO of Resource Council UK. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sue. And as you said, I'm the acting CEO of the Resuscitation Council UK. So here and happy to talk about anything to do with resus. So before we get started talking about CPR and what we're actually here to talk about today, I just want to say a really quick well done, congratulations to Rachel Fox and Edward Christopher. These are two students who've been listening to our podcast. They left a review on iTunes and then they let us know on social media that they did so. And I'm just absolutely delighted to give them the prize that we had on offer, uh, a free on-examination subscription each. Congrats. Uh, Let's get on and talk about some CPR. Now, we're not necessarily going to talk about the ins and outs of how to do CPR because that's exactly what we do learn in medical school or you learn it on your, your first couple of rotations as a junior doctor. So we're not talking about the hows and whys, not talking about compressions and breaths necessarily. We're talking about the things that worry us. We're talking about the things that we don't yet know, the things around the CPR. What happens before? How does it feel during? What happens after? What's supposed to happen? How do you cope with your very first event? Um, perhaps something that we're all a bit nervous about. Um, so, Jadera, you're a newly qualified doctor. Mm-hmm. You're eight months into the job now. Yes. So, have you done CPR? No. Surprisingly, I thought that I would have had some sort of experience to date by now, particularly with my night shifts where I'm the one who's, well, the only one <laughs> plus my team who would go. Um, but it hasn't happened yet. I don't know if Whoa. I'm just a bit of a good luck charm. Hang on, so you've I'd had... like to think. <laughs> <laughs> you've, had, you've had surgery and now you're on medicine, right? Yep. Yeah. And not a single... No. Just when I'm around, people just are very stable, clearly. <laughs> you give people the will to live. Slash, I guess, we're at a point now where DNA CPR, so deciding not to beforehand, is very prevalent and people are making their decisions earlier. So maybe I think that plays a big part in it and that often there have been situations where the, the patient's been DNA CPR, so when we've arrived, that's been said sort of as soon as you get there, as soon as the medical team gets there, the nurse will tell you. So I don't know if that's had some part in the point in the fact that I haven't mm. done it yet, maybe. 
Wow. And have you ever seen it? Um, Even if you haven't taken part? Honestly, no. None of my awards... I think my awards are... <laughs> I don't know. I so really not as a med haven't. student either? Um, I've never seen proper CPR before. I've seen... I've, I've been to courses. I've done the ILS and the ALS as... What do they stand for? So ILS is Intermediate Life Course. Life... Immediate Life Support. Immediate Life Support. Look at me, I don't even know the name of the acronyms. Um, But that's what you do in medical school. Yeah. And then you do the advanced as an F1. Um, Or you you do do it as a... As a medical student. Oh, have you done it? Yeah, yeah, I've done my ALS, yeah. What, at uni? Yeah, yeah, gets paid for us, saves a bit of money. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 it's good. I don't know how common that is, eh, but... Most of the people in my year hadn't done it, but had not done it before F1, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would be so anxious if I was an F1 and hadn't done ALS. Oh, 100%. After doing ALS, I suddenly realised how big a gap in my knowledge I had, and I didn't do it until about four months into starting as an F1. So how about you, Declan? Have you ever witnessed it on your placement? I actually haven't as well, which I think is quite worrying too because <laughs> um, I've finished my finals and you would like to have thought that as a junior doctor I would have at least done it on one person, but no, I haven't. So, yeah. I mean, that terrifies me really. If, if I start my first shift on call and I'm holding the crash bleep, yep. that's the first time I would have ever put my hands on somebody's chest to do CPR. Which yeah. is terrifying, really. What's terrifying about it? Everything about it. The yeah. fact that there's a dead person basically there in front of you and you're meant to, without any real preparation, jump on the chest and then organise kind of the team around you to to do all of these different things. And, I mean, if I go into a clinical examination like an OSCE, I know half of my knowledge goes out of my head. So I'm worried that I'll turn up to a patient who's had a cardiac arrest and half of my knowledge will go out of my head and I won't know what to do. Mm. But you're not the only one there. I think that's one really big mm-hmm. message to take away yeah. is it's you think it's it's just you, you think I've got the crash bleep, it's me, but it's not just you. There's there's probably six other people thinking that. And if you yeah. add those six halves of brains together, you've got three really good ones. <laughs> that's, that's a nice <laughs> positive know, way. Take, take that positive thought, thought forward. But I think it is, it's quite unusual that neither of you have seen yeah. a cardiac arrest at all. And neither have I. I've, I've and never, neither have you either. No, I've never wow. seen it. I've never... I've seen people in the, uh, what do you call that part of a it's, it's called recess, the recess yeah. room, isn't it? Yeah. So I've seen people in there and seen people who are really, really sick mm-hmm. and have um, helped out. But I've never seen anyone no. have a cardiac arrest. That or never seen how a... far we've come as well. Yeah. Well, because that a lot of those people a few years ago or a number of years ago would probably have arrested. But because of where we are with recognition of the sick person and treating them, and also, as you said, uh, DNA CPR, or more recently, maybe the respect process. People yeah. are making decisions. Yeah. You guys are having more conversation with patients, with people about the appropriateness of CPR. Yeah. And that has to be a huge step forward. Mm. Mm. But the thing is that because we haven't witnessed it, it still mm. has this sort of mystery around it. It's still quite scary and and it's an unknown mm. thing. And for me, definitely, I definitely see myself as, well, I feel like it'll be an event where there'll be a before and after and that I'll be kind of changed I, I mean I don't I don't want to make it like a dramatic light but, no, but actually, I, do, I, think, I, think, I do think so you know we, we, when we apply to medical school one of the things that we think about very hard is whether we're able to cope with death and things mm-hmm. like that but that's the kind of thing we question ourselves and how we have to prove that in our personal statements mm-hmm. you know it's something we carry with us from when we're 16 this is something I have to do and so you look forward to it and it, 
you know, I'd, I don't want to be overdramatic, but I really do feel like this is something that will change me as a person. Yeah. I can hear myself saying that I'm cringing inside. But <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very worried for the first time I have to do it and it fails. Yeah. And then, mm. like, just the aftermath of knowing that you've been on top of a dead person, not being able to do anything. Like, mm. that's such a monumental event for them, their family and whatever. So let's just get it all out on the table here. Like, what kind of things in your head, what what worries you? Just Just list out a bunch of things. So something that I've been thinking about a lot, because I've just come off some night shifts, and I overheard some people saying things like, this lady's come in, she does need a DNA CPR, did that team do it before they went home, X, Y, Z? And then I start thinking about, you know, one, what do you do if you go to see a patient who has crashed and you immediately don't think this person's appropriate for CPR? But even if you do think that at the beginning, how like, who calls it? Who says, you know what, we've done enough rounds here, mm. it's not been successful, this is the... Because sometimes you hear people saying we went for hours and sometimes mm. it's one round and then they say, look, I don't think we should continue. And... I feel like that in itself almost feels more significant than doing it and not being successful. It's that point where you decide that it's not. And I just, I wouldn't know how to make that decision. Uh, Declan, how about you? Um, I mean, to be honest, I'm worried about the first time I get that. I get that um, crash call and just what's going to go through my mind as, as I'm running there. Kind of, I'll probably be trying to go through the algorithms in my head. But just like if I'm the first person there, what do you prioritise? If other people are there, what part of the team do you kind of slot yourself into? I mean, I think what you said about um, when do you stop is really important. Do you need to wait for a consultant to arrive before you stop, even though if you if you think it's completely futile? Um, yeah. yeah, and the aftermath, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty worried about. Yeah, some of those things are true for me as well. Like I worry about how I'm going to fit in with like on that first time where you don't know who's who and it looks like a, a like a, a mess of people, even if everyone's doing a job, but you don't recognise that pattern of who do, who's doing what yet. So yeah. how to fit in with that. Um, I guess what it feels like, I'm worried that I'll forget everything as soon as, I ent- you know, as soon as I'm under pressure. Mm. That worries me. And then afterwards, like, does everyone just, you know, if it's normal for everyone else on your team, does everyone just disappear and go back to their jobs? Or, like, and if I'm, if I'm freaking out... Who if, do you go to? Who can who's, I talk, like, yeah. who's... I, I'm, okay, I'm being vulnerable here, but like, as you know, is it going to be really silly if I want to talk to a more senior doctor about what what has happened? Yeah, you know, do, am I expected to just suck it up and get on with it because I've chosen to be a doctor? Mm. Um, so those kind of things that worry yeah. me. I mean, something that not necessarily worries me, but I think should also be considered is kind of the environment that you're doing it within. If there's if there's a, a patient on a ward and there's 10 people around them and there's yeah. five other patients in the bed with a curtain, fair enough, the curtain's around the patient, yeah. but do, I we, do, a, con- do a consider consider their feelings and it's a traumatic event for us, but imagine being a patient, there's a curtain in the way, but you hear all this ruckus and you're like, well, yeah. could that be yeah. me? Like, yeah, yeah, I think that's also something that I wouldn't really know if someone was, yeah. I wouldn't really know what to say to a patient also yeah. after that. Yeah. Or what, what do you say to families after? How do you yeah. explain what's happened? So it sounds like we've got a lot to unpack here. And, it, you know, let, let's acknowledge that it is quite tric- tricky for us as med students, you and me, Declan, to witness CPR and to or to take part as med students because we do feel like we can't contribute and we are watching. And if, if everything's an emergency, there might not be an appropriate time for us to ask if we can watch. Mm. And, you know, let's also acknowledge that this isn't... We're not just worried for ourselves and our own, like 
well-being, we're we're also concerned because ultimately we'll be responsible for a patient. And I guess what partly we're worried about is that we won't be able to give patients our best if we're mm. worrying about all this other stuff. So what I'm really hoping, Sue, is that we'll be able to talk about all this stuff with you and come away being more confident, a bit more prepared, and that in the end that that will benefit our patients in the future. So, I mean, Sue, are these the kind of things that we're talking about? You've, uh, we, in, yeah, and they're very common. Uh, and I think everybody will feel some, if not all, of the, the thoughts that you've you've raised. And I don't think you're unusual in your, your fears, anxieties and thoughts about what's going to happen. Um, you know, it, it's not something you're going to see every day. It's not something that's going to be the same thing twice over. Every, every patient's different. Every situation's different. Every hospital is different as well. So it's, no, it's it's a tricky one. You know, you yeah. just get used to a set of equipment in one hospital. Your rotation changes. The defibrillator in the next hospital can be totally different. You've got a whole new learning curve. So you're Sorry just to us give more you things more. To I was worry about. Say, yeah, yeah, this is, yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> but you've got one real ally in all of this, and that's your resuscitation department. Um, and you've got resuscitation officers in most, if not all, hospitals or people who are doing that all of the time. And they will be your biggest allies. They will you know, give you all the help and advice. Um, and having been one in the past, you know, you would be looking out for not only medical students, but student nurses as well, because it's the best time to be able to help you when you don't have the responsibility of the bleep, you don't have the responsibility of being the F1 or the F2 or whoever. So we can actually help you through that. So Definitely. when you are on your placement, seek them out, seek the resus officers okay. out and, and you know go and stand next to them and say, what can I do? Can you just sort of point me in the right direction mm. um, and talk to them afterwards as well? Now, they're busy people too. Mm. They might not be able to do it at the time but, um, but if you never ask them you never know you never right? ask you don't get yeah um so us three here none of us have got much experience in this area mm. at all and of course Sue, you, you've got loads of experience but i really did want to hear from someone in our position who has some experience with cpr so earlier this week i chatted to ali abdal who's uh, a, an f1 doctor same stage as jadera and he's also a youtuber so you may recognize him from okay. youtube um and he has had lots of experience with CPR. So let's hear from him now. Essentially, on, on the very first day of F1, on August the 1st, I was on my cardiology placement. And uh, the F1 sometimes had to carry the crash leap, so the bleep that goes off whenever there's a cardiac arrest in the hospital. Um, so what happened was that for the first few days, I was carrying this cardiac arrest leap. And not really fully knowing what I should be doing if I turn up to a cardiac arrest. Hang on, hang on. I've had all the... Hang on, you were, you were holding the crash bleep on your first day? Yeah. Your first day ever? First day ever. Whoa. Yeah, so as soon as the buzzer would go off, it, it, it would start blaring, Ward M4, cardiac arrest, Ward M4, cardiac arrest, and then I would run to find Ward M4. Uh, for quite a few of them, I didn't really know where the ward was, so I'd end up asking for directions along the way. But usually when you're running to a cardiac arrest, other people are also running to a cardiac arrest and so you end up following following people. And Okay, so how does this relate to your your project? Yeah, so um, I thought this was just like uh, standard practice, uh, you know, F1 going to cardiac arrest. But then having spoken to a lot of other F1s who were covering the crash loop uh, on, on the evening shift, I realised that everyone has a certain level of anxiety about about carrying this thing, especially because it was our first placement, we were F1, we hadn't done our advanced life support course, our ALS 
we all vaguely know kind of the basics of DLS and ILS, and we know to start chest compressions, but we hadn't been trained in the full ALS algorithm. And so we would have felt very uncomfortable, A, leading a team, but also B, taking part in a team and knowing exactly what our role was. So we thought that this was a pretty good thing to do a quality improvement project on because it's something that people wouldn't really appreciate, you know, the anxiety that everyone has to go through unless they've been through it themselves. Do you remember those anxieties yourself when you when you sort of turned up to your first real crash call? Like, what, what was going through your mind? So the first one I turned up to is where it was a genuine cardiac arrest. I remember thinking, because there, was, there were so many people around, it, it, it seemed like everyone knew what they were doing, but I felt that while I was there, I didn't really know what, what my role was. So I offered to do some things, and I knew I could help with chest compressions if necessary. But other, other than that, I felt like a bit of an accessory. Um, which I suppose is natural when it's your first time on, on the team, but it, that wasn't a very nice feeling of kind of feeling a bit helpless, not really knowing what to do and thinking, ah, oh, you know, I'm a doctor now. I, sh- I should be offering offering some help. So what did you do? On that, on that very first one, um, I sort of tapped one of the nurses on the shoulder who seemed to be seemed to be free and said, hey, anything I can do? And she suggested that I look through the patient's notes and find out what's actually wrong with them. And that was something I, ha- I hadn't really thought to do because it hadn't quite clocked for me that when someone has a cardiac arrest, an unexpected cardiac arrest on a ward, and the crash team turns up, the team has no real idea of who the patient is, why they're in hospital, what's wrong with them. So I found that it was actually quite helpful for me to log onto the computer system, go through the patient's notes, and try and present a summary of why the patient's in hospital. So I did end up being useful in that particular one, but still the, the initial feeling of helplessness. And also in, in subsequent cardiac arrests, it wasn't quite the same where I had a defined job. There were quite a few cases where it was, it was sort of me and some other people who turned up were just kind of hanging around waiting to be told what to do. But that feeling of helplessness that you described, like, does that fade away over time? Like, what, what's it like doing CPR events now? Yeah, I think, I think it definitely does fade away over time, especially having, having done the ALS course. Now, if, I, if, if there's a cardiac arrest, I almost feel excited to go because I know that I have a role in the team. I know what I could be doing. Whereas on that first day, and this is the experience that everyone has, you kind of hang back a bit because you're, you're not really sure of, you know, what you're supposed to do, what you're allowed to do, what, what, you, what you even can do. So now when I go to CPR, I'm more than happy to volunteer to put in the cannula or to do the gas or to, uh, you know, uh, actively volunteer to take over chest compressions if I can see that someone is getting tired. What's it like giving chest compressions? Yeah, so it is much more like um, it's much more organic than doing it on a dummy. I think in real life, the main thing is that there's a lot more sound compared to what you'd expect with a dummy. So, for example, with a dummy, you just you know get the compression, get the picky sound. Whereas in real life, you sometimes hear and you see the secretions coming up out of the patient's mouth. So every time you go down with a compression, you can sometimes see a bit of like a like a uh, 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 kind of kind of sound coming out of the patient's mouth. And that was really, really terrifying for me the first time around because I wondered whether the patient was actually was actually awake, was actually responsive while we were doing the compression, but they didn't have a pulse, they weren't breathing, it's just they were still making these sounds. Um, and in the debrief that we did with the team afterwards, I, I brought this up and they explained that, yeah, this is, this is quite common and this is, this is actually one of the main differences in real life, the amount of sound you get. And I suppose, I suppose another difference is um, did, did, depending on how the team is run, it, it feels a lot more manic. So I've, I've been to a few cardiac arrests that have been led really, really well 
where everything runs like clockwork, everyone is calm and collected, and it feels like a simulation session, and the patient goes to ITU and ends up having a good outcome. But equally, I've been to a few whereby, you know, perhaps the clinical situation is a bit more complicated. It's not a case of just following the algorithm. A few more complex decisions have to be made. Perhaps the leadership isn't quite as good as it's been in other ones. And therefore, there's a lot more uncertainty about who's doing what, what's going on. So you get people sort of shouting across the room at each other. You get, it, it becomes a very, it's like a cacophony of sounds almost when, it, when it's done in, a, in, in complicated patients. So I, think, I think the sound is the main thing that, that stays with me is the differences between real life and simulation. So we're going to talk about Ali's experience and we're going to bring all our worries to Sue and uh, get advice to prepare ourselves for our first CPR event. But that will be right after this. How much do you care about indemnity right now? Probably not a lot. You're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients. But being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity. We can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. And when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of medical protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org. All right, back to the show. Uh, so Chidera, you did a lot of nodding throughout that yeah. recording. What were you hearing that you relate to or, or have experience of? So I think even though I've not been specifically to a crash or CPR event, I have been to quite a few medical emergencies. Um, and that feeling of getting there and thinking, oh, what do I actually do here can be quite, it can be quite scary. And as he was saying, you know, if it's really well led, then you, I've been to somewhere, I've got there and someone's immediately been like, you do the ABG or you get the information on the med on the patient. And that's great. But sometimes you get there and you're kind of stood in the background and everyone's kind of like umming and erring. And I think and this is something that I picked up in ALS that once you see it in real life, you realise is so important is when people just kind of say, can we have an ABG? And everyone's like, is that is that me? Is that you? Who is doing this? Are we doing three ABGs? Like what is happening? Um, so that's definitely something that I can uh, relate to. And what he was saying about when you get there, you kind of forget that no one actually knows who this patient is or why. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Sometimes you turn up and you just see a patient who's seizing or, you know, unconscious and you're kind of like, oh, okay, so like... Then you got to find the cow, so a computer on wheels that works, and people are trying to log in. The internet's not working. This one died because the battery it wasn't plugged in. You're talking blah, about blah. the computer, right? Yeah, <laughs> not the actual cow. Cow, <laughs> cow computer you? on wheels. You'll get used to them, and you're yeah. forced to lug them around the hospital, and they are the bane of my existence. But again, like trying to find out background information, super hard. So I never thought until I heard the story. I never thought that finding patient information was part of CPR. Like huge I, part. It's not. No. It's not cardio. It's not pulmonary. It's not resuscitation. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I never thought that that would be like part of the process. But I think it's because it you kind of forget that. Like he was saying, if someone 
require CPR. There's a reason. And a big part of getting them out of this situation is hopefully reversing whatever that is. But that requires someone doing the work of, like, you know, why are they here? What could possibly go wrong? When you do ALS, because I don't need to go into this with you, but (laughs) you will realise that, you know, there's specific things that you should be looking for, maybe in their notes or when you talk to the nurse who's been on the ward Mm. that will help you realise that. But it's because there's so much hand-on stuff to do, like ABGs and bloods and compressions and you know securing the airway, blah, 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 you kind of forget about that aspect of it, which is probably one of the most important aspects of the whole thing. I think it's very unlikely you're going to know the patient that you're going yeah. to, um, mm. because you guys are going to be covering, if not the whole hospital, you're going to be <laughs> yeah. covering a big oh. part of it um, as yeah. part of the team. And, and I think probably your number one worry is going to be, where am I going? You know, yeah. That, yeah. And that's that's the really scary thing. If you've got to be a really big unit, now some hospitals will help you by giving a really, really clear message when you go. So it won't just be Ward X. It'll be this building, this floor, this area, this ward. Yeah. So you at least can tell where you're going. But Can when you imagine you first... the panic of like running around yeah. the hospital, like Honestly. just not even knowing you're going? With that, with a little stuff, <laughs> I need to wear white shirts. You'll get that. The best thing is on nights when you have no way, no idea where you're going. There's no one in the hallway, oh, and gosh, it's dark. Yeah. Yeah. I've gone up so many like fire escapes, like random corridors with no end or doors. The roof of the <laughs> Just don't let the fire exit shut without you. <laughs> yeah. So Sue, what did what did you think of Ali's story? It's really interesting hearing his story where he'd been to so many in his first week and you were, you've not been to any in the, the months contrast, that you've been yeah. there. What a contrast. But it's typical. You know, you get two of you together and it'll be exactly the same thing. You know, some, some people will go through their first two years, their F1 and their F2 maybe without seeing one, depending on their shifts, their you know, specialities that they're in. Um, he was amazing, absolutely amazing. Mm. And I think he really brought home the the fears and anxieties and mm. that that you guys have all been bringing out this morning or this afternoon and and you know just live with it you're not the only ones there's other people there nursing staff are really good you know just just fess up what can i do was there anything like your story like your first time my first time was i was on a medical ward um and it was a gentleman who collapsed in the toilet as they always do and that's the other thing to remember they never collapse on their back yeah. in the bed with nothing else around them no it's never no. convenient um and he suffered a massive pulmonary embolism um it was my very first ward so i really didn't know anything um and it was i seem to remember it was okay as okay as it can be when the gentleman's on the toilet floor and you're trying to resuscitate him. so hang on did you did you start Right I didn't know. I I didn't find him. I was kind of one, very much like yourselves, wandering there, standing around, wondering what to do. I think I did some chest compressions. Um, this is a really silly question, but did they didn't they like move him onto a bed or a couch to no. be able to do it properly? They just no. they, we, did you the whole... resuscitate where you find, okay. unless you're going to be in danger yourself, yeah. because mm-hmm. the time it takes to move somebody safely mm-hmm. who is, excuse the wording, but a dead weight because that's what they are, um, you resuscitate them on the floor. Okay. And so how did you... Do you remember how you felt afterwards? You said you were pretty okay. It was okay. And I do remember the ward sister at the time coming up to me and saying, are you okay? Which was really nice. And just taking the time to see this little first ward nurse, you know, and sort of just saying, are you okay? And, And just explaining that 
he'd had a pulmonary embolism and he was probably never going to survive because I think it was that feeling it's your first one you you know you kind of hope it's going to be a success but it obviously wasn't in his case but her actually saying it was never going to be a success I think was really oh okay I can deal with this that takes quite a weight off you then doesn't it does had you ever met this patient before you resuscitated him? I can't remember how long he'd been in. Um, I'd probably been on the ward with him. Mm. Um, But he wasn't somebody that I was... Hadn't built a relationship. Because that's something I'm particularly worried about. What if you have this this rapport with a patient Mm. and you build a relationship with them and then the girl... I remember it wasn't a cardiac arrest, but I was on a hepatology ward and Mm. there was a guy who was an alcoholic and they're trying to detox him. And I remember going home... Uh, speaking to him and he was like really motivated to like turn his life around I came in the next day he'd seized and died overnight and that just kind of that just kind of hit me quite hard so I think don't be afraid to cry yeah um, yeah, don't be afraid to have some emotion there because you've got to deal with it yeah Um, and yeah there will be patients that you've got really close to either you know for whatever reason they've been in a long time you've got to know their family they might just have been in a few hours but something's clicked you know, you are going to be emotional. You are going to feel yeah. this. It's just where where do you get the support for that, really? I guess. So you know a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, compared mm. to us. Anyway, we're we're, <laughs> like, we're like looking. Sorry if we're putting you on a pedestal, but to, compared to us, you're like you know a lot, a lot. I've been there. I've done it, but it's different every time. You yeah. may well have an experience tomorrow that I have never seen before. Yeah, and that's great because okay. you've got you're building up your own wealth of experience, and and that's super. So yeah, and share it. So with that caveat. Is it all right with you if we bring all those questions we came up with earlier, just yeah, bring sure. them all to you? And I agony. may not have an answer. Yeah? But, but let's but, go for it. But you know what? Just be, be an agony aunt. Reassure oh, us. I can do that. Help, help prepare us. You know, build us up. <laughs> um, yeah, so who wants, who wants to go first? Who wants to... Um, so my specific question was, and I think, yeah, I alluded to this earlier. When you're doing CPR and you start to think that it's futile, who, who has that position of saying okay let's stop and if that's something that you've done before what was it maybe that made you feel that way sure and and that's I think probably we've all stood around or been doing CPR and have thought this isn't going to work why are we doing this or we shouldn't be doing it in the first place the first thing to say is you're in a team and it's never your decision Um, ultimately it's the team leader's decision who will be somebody at the moment who is much more experienced than Mm. you guys so you will have a team leader there Um, it's usually a senior clinician so it's usually a registrar who who you're on the team with Um, it can sometimes be influenced by the person from intensive care because again it's a team decision so if you're getting down you've done everything on the algorithm, you've gone through causes, you've gone through their notes, you know what's going on. At some point, somebody, and it will be the team leader in normal circumstances, but it could be anybody who says, what are we doing? Let's step back. Let's, you know, let's just have a review. We've got two minutes of CPR to do. Let's think about where we're going, where we've been, and what's actually going on here. Um, Would it be possible ever for one of us uh, well, me in the future, but like as a newly qualified doctor, to say, absolutely, maybe, yes. You know, is, is yeah. that can we yeah. do that? Is that you can question? Yeah. You know, where where are we going? Yeah, and and I think that's a very valid valid point because the team don't know the person. If you do, you're not going to say as as a junior doctor, I think we should stop now, 
but what you are going to say is I know this patient I can add in my expertise which is I know what's going on here I know what's worked I know about conversations that we've had I've been sitting beside them I've been sitting with them over the last few days giving them treatments I know they wouldn't want this can we just have a rethink now you might not want to say that out loud to the whole group (laughs) but you might just sidle up to the team leader and and have a little quiet chat in their ear so oh yeah if you know and you've really got that feeling that this isn't going well this isn't what this person would have wanted um anybody can say that yeah but who makes the decision to stop ultimately the team leader says we're going to stop but they should go around everybody to make sure that they're in agreement and that's from the most senior person who may be the anaesthetist to you know the the student nurse that's come on board to do chest compressions because everybody needs to be comfortable with that decision and don't go away without asking if you're not because that's when you you start to dwell on things is it hard to say stop the first time you are in that position oh yes yeah it's hard it's much easier to keep going than to stop much much easier to keep going um because you are you you're doctors you're there to save life you're there to preserve life you're there to do all you can but there are some people who you just cannot save and the best thing for them is to allow them a dignified death But yeah, much, much more difficult to say stop. Let me just take a little pause uh, to tell you guys at home how much we appreciate you listening to the podcast. Uh, We appreciate you so, so much. And so as a thank you, we've teamed up with On Examination to get us all a 15% discount on all their question banks for students. Uh, So if you've not heard of it, On Examination is a question bank for medical exams. uh, And regular listeners will know that I absolutely swear by practice questions when it comes to revising. Um, so personally, On Examination is my current fave question bank because it's got its own app that works really conveniently on my phone as well as on my desktop. Um, and now, On Examination are giving us all a special sharp scratch discount of 15%. So if you're going for, say, your medical student finals, then you'll pay less than 32 instead of 37 quid for access to a bank of over 4,000 questions in those critical last three months before your exams. And the discounts are across all student exams. And if you're a new, newly qualified doctor listening, then we've also got the MRCP part one thrown in there for you as well. Uh, so head to the student section of onexamination.com, select your exam and enter sharp scratch. That's all caps, no spaces at the checkout for a 15% discount. That's 15% off on examination with a promo code of sharp scratch, all caps, no spaces. Uh, later on, I'll let you know how you could win a free on examination subscription as a sharp scratch listener. Uh, but for now, let's get back to the show. So to bring it back to CPR mm. events, um, in Ali's story, he mentioned how the first time he turned up, he looked at the patient's notes. Mm. Like that was the job he was given. Um, and I said that one thing one thing I'm worried about is turning up and not really knowing who's doing what and who I'm supposed to, you know, who's leading and so on, like how to identify who's doing what. What kind of things might I have in mind that I could meaningfully contribute in my first time, my second, you know, like the sort of first couple of times, what kind of jobs might I actually be expected to do? You guys can do chest compressions. So we know that chest compressions are tiring. We know that two minutes is all that we want people to do. And some people can't carry on for that long, which is fine. So you can always say to the person who's doing chest compressions, I'm standing behind you, I'll take over. 
whenever either you're tired or at the next two-minute break. So chest compressions. You guys are great at getting IV lines in. You are mentioned we? what? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hey, come on! You know you're brilliant at these. Should back of myself. Oh, thanks, Sue, for the encouragement. <laughs> You've like not guesses. seen me on placement. <laughs> <laughs> so I steer clear of you when you come to me with a needle. Okay. <laughs> Blood gas again. Um, those sorts of things. But you will soon identify, hopefully, who is the team leader because they should be the ones who are sort of taking charge and who are looking around. So you can always just say to them, look, I'm here. It's my first time. Give me a job to do. Um, But certainly chest compressions, bloods, those are the two things that we always need doing. Notes, again, especially if it's a patient that you know or you know where the notes trolley is on the ward because they're different places everywhere. Um, Go and find those. Go and you know, sort of make sure that there's a nurse who knows the patient who can come and help us because they're great. Again, they know their patients and they can often add in the conversation that they had when they were helping Mr. Smith to have a wash. Um, You know, it's those little things that are the real gold nuggets here. Let's do a few more questions from us. And Um, so one question I had, and it kind of relates to what happened on my night shift this weekend. Um, I had to certify death and then I just had to go back to going through the rest of my jobs and going to handover and I didn't really feel like I had time or had the right to take time to actually kind of think through what happened and I don't think I really unpacked what happened until I got home the next morning and I just wondered what do you do after a CPR particularly if it goes wrong how do you take that time to yourself or even with someone else to kind of debrief I guess yeah it's a really tricky one and it does really depend on what happens on the day Um, we can do what we call a hot debrief which is literally two five minutes at the bedside or a little bit removed obviously from the bedside you know Mm -hmm. okay this happened what does everybody feel about it what did we learn from it let's take that away and and think about it in more depth later on Um, if it's a really bad event sounds sounds not quite right but if it's a really traumatic incident let's say then we can organize or it can be organized that you have a a longer debrief which is days after the event sometimes and especially if there are lots of lessons to be learned that's the best way of doing it but you've got to hang on to those those thoughts during that time and it is really difficult because you guys you're carrying the bleep you're on call Quite often the bleep's gone off three times while you've been at the cardiac arrest, quite honestly. So what do you prioritise? And there is a certain amount of picking yourselves up and moving on. And whilst that sounds callous, it does happen. And and sometimes that's useful because you you can move on and you can become more positive. But at the end of the day, you, you have to find a coping mechanism that suits you. And not one thing suits all. But please find somebody to talk to at some stage and yeah. just, you know, cup of coffee, even glass of water over the water cooler. Um, you know, something something that you can just take the time to go through whatever is bugging you because there will be something bugging you at some point. So what you're saying there is that realistically sometimes we will have to just go straight back to work just because mm. of the other demands that are there. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. I can understand that. But you're also saying that well, what I'm wondering is that, you know, you mentioned a hot debrief, like who who starts that and how, like, if we have just gone back to work and it's now like several hours later or it's, you know, we're finishing a shift, how do we, how can we like instigate that? Instigate it, yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Um, and lots of different ways. If you're working together, and I don't know how your teams will be organised, but quite often it's your team that covers the emergency bleep. So it's you and your senior 
a clinician who's on, you know, take time out to say, look, can we just have five minutes somewhere along the line? I really do need to talk about that. They've all been in the same situation as you and not that long ago. So whilst they may appear to be coping and to to be moving on so quickly, they're probably as churned up inside as you are, especially if it's been a, a difficult one or you know, we haven't touched on children. That's a whole different ball yeah. game. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, you know, and that's that's probably something that that we could spend hours on in its own right. It is really down to you and and what works for you. But just recognise the fact that you need to do it. And I think there's there is more support out there for you than there was. But I won't say it's ideal. So, Ali mentioned that one thing that really shocked him the f- in his first few times were things that he didn't expect to happen, things that don't happen with a dummy. So he mentioned that some sounds came out the patient's mm, mouth, yeah. some secretions came out the patient's mouth, and that he hadn't necessarily been like prepared for this to happen. Are there any other kind of thing, parts of CPR that might shock us at first or that might surprise us? Yes, they do make noises. Um, there will be gurgling noises. Sometimes there will be breath sounds sometimes some patients are incontinent a lot of patients are incontinent so you'll get fecal matter Um, you may have blood because of the whatever is wrong with the patient so it's not clean and tidy it's messy or it can be messy sometimes it isn't but a lot Mm. of the time it is depending on where you are could I quickly ask sorry because this is something that I think of so you know when you do ALS and things like that I'm often told you're not pressing hard enough when Mm. I'm doing my Mm. compressions is that, I do wonder if that's going to be a barrier for me if I do come to do CPR or if adrenaline will take over because, I mean, a bit random, but I recently did a kickboxing class and I had to spar with the teacher and literally I wouldn't kick him for the first 10 minutes of sparring and then when I did, I apologised after every single one. Oh, bless you. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, I don't it. like hurting people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and hurting somebody who is yeah. in yeah. this state. Don't forget, if you do nothing, they have no chance of surviving. Whatever we do is going to help them. Yeah. Um, yes, you will be worried about, and that's the other thing that can happen. We can crack ribs, uh, and you may get that sound. Is, is that normal? Yes, very often. There's a lot of a lot of occasions when we will crack ribs, um, and it may or may not be picked up at the time. But sometimes you will hear a, a sort of grinding noise if oh you do goodness. break ribs. Please don't stop. Yeah. You know, I can survive with broken ribs. I can't survive if you don't do CPR on me. And that's your bottom line. You know, I've got to do CPR. And the other thing is how hard do you press? You, you know, a mannequin is a is a reasonable substitute for a human being but is not a good substitute for a human being. So you will learn what a chest feels like the more you do it. Um and and how hard to push. And there's a lot of lot of um places that will have um, quality CPR devices now that you have uh, what we call pucks or pads on the chest that will help you by actually saying to you press harder oh, or wow. release fully. Oh, they're absolutely brilliant. So, you know, there are there are machine devices that maybe plug into the defib or sit separately that if you're going not hard enough, they will say press harder, press more firmly, or they'll say, you know, let your hands up or go faster, go slower. So there are things out there that will help you in a lot of your hospitals. Uh, but don't ever stop just because you think you might be hurting somebody, you won't. So we've talked a lot about uh difficult CPR events and bad outcomes, but what actually happens if you are at a CPR event and the person resuscitates? What's supposed to happen next? <laughs> uh, that's another one where you know it, it it depends on the person i feel it's i'm saying it depends an awful lot um 
ultimately you, what you would like to happen is for this person to be sorted out as much as they can be on the ward and then taken to intensive care for ongoing therapy ongoing management so that's where they tend to go next that is where they tend to go but it depends on who the patient is what's wrong with them and actually the bottom line whether i see you have gotten any beds yeah so there's all of those sorts of things which again doesn't come up in your als course but this is the reality of life if i see you hasn't got any beds what are you going to do? If this person needs a bed, they may have to stay on the ward until somebody else has been taken out of ICU. So there's a period there where there's some stabilisation, which again, you guys can help with because it's it's all about bloods, it's all about lines, infusions, x-rays. Um, but there may well be quite a time lag between that person being resuscitated and getting the circulation back and where they go next. So, in, so as newly qualified doctors, how long are we supposed to stick around? Stick around, um, well, just I would always say stick around while you're you're serving a useful purpose, so you're doing something. But always, always say to either the team leader or the senior nurse that's around, or you know some of the staff, do you need me to do anything else? Because at the end of the day, it's it's much better if we know that you've gone yes. than to say you've walked out and oh where are they? You know we need you to do something else because that isn't very good either. So stick around, make sure that somebody knows you're leaving. And if it's you and your senior who's team leading, then obviously you may well leave together or they may leave you at the bedside to do some other um, bits of work before the patient's handed over to some other care. The other thing, of course, is that they may decide that whilst the person has regained their circulation, they're not going to go to ICU because of their comorbidities, because of the likelihood of the success of ICU mm. and a whole other shed load of stuff. So it may well be that you are working towards keeping them comfortable on the ward. So whilst this patient has survived their cardiac arrest, you may then be put in the situation is that they may not survive long term mm. because of what's going on. So that's, that again, is another conversation situation that you might find yourselves in. So thank you so much, Sue, for coming on. I think we can all say that we found it really useful. Yeah, so helpful. I think the, I think the main thing to say is just go in there and just do your best because that's all we can do. Um, and don't be worried if somebody barks at you to do something. Just get on and do it and then reflect on it afterwards. And there's always someone there to help you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Um, it's been really great to have you with us. Good, it's been real fun. So... Chidera and Declan, you guys are actually going to have to be doing this quite soon. Chidera, for you, it could happen next week. Literally Declan. next week. Yeah, <laughs> Declan, for you, weeks, like, in weeks, six weeks. Your first post is research, though, so... It is. I'll be on call, though, so I'll probably have uh, all the scary oh, jobs. Oh, good, so you have the... none of the downtime on the ward, but all of the on-call shit. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Hashtag pray for Declan. And, uh... <laughs> so what are you, what have you guys learned today? What are you going to take away from this? I guess for me, the main thing is the unpredictability of what you're going to see. So you don't. That kind of makes it sounds like you haven't learned anything at all. Like no, <laughs> I have learned how unpredictable it can be. So you get a crash call. You don't know where you're going. You don't necessarily know the team. But as an F1, your role is to just try and fit in where you can, do what you know, do the procedures that you know, look in the notes, kind of what you've done in medical school stick by that don't expect to lead the team okay, or take too much responsibility just contribute how you feel comfortable in doing so so you do feel a bit reassured even though it's all unknown 
yeah, I, I feel reassured that I can be useful in some respect in, in a cardiac arrest. All right. How about you, Jadera? Yeah, I think a big thing for me that I think I'll take into the future is to be a bit more, not assertive, but I think to get there and think, okay, yes, I'm here. Is there anything I can do? Because I think in the past, particularly my first medical emergency call, I did just kind of turn up and stand behind some people and hope no one would notice I was there. <laughs> um, but realistically as an F1 there are things that I can do like I can do an ABG I can do some bloods I can do compression so I think yeah going in and knowing that you should just say hi I'm here is there anything that I can do that is something that I think I'm definitely going to take forward even more so than in the past yeah same actually it's been a massive le- I mean it's still like two years off for me but today's <laughs> been like a massive learning curve in terms of loads of stuff that I didn't know about CPR before like I didn't realize that all those simple jobs were part of it as well as the compressions so I'm going to take that away mm-hmm. um and then there's also this stuff I didn't know any I mean I'm a little bit freaked out not gonna lie but I didn't know all that like at least I'm more prepared I didn't yeah, know all that exactly. stuff about the sounds and the mm. um, no bodily fluids yeah. and so on that you know that you don't get with a dummy so I'm kind of glad and not glad to know that yeah, yeah being um, reassured about cracking ribs as much as i'd prefer not to i know that if it happens just keep going yeah so, yeah yeah you can do it all right well that's all from us on sharp scratch today if you'd like to hear more from us at home then subscribe to sharp scratch wherever you get your podcasts and in two weeks time you'll get our next episode straight to your phone and in the meantime check us out on social media we're at student bmj on twitter at student underscore bmj on instagram and student bmj on facebook links in the description let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag sharp scratch we've got some ideas coming in already and we'd just love to hear more of your ideas for what we should cover on la- later on in the season Um, It's also super, super helpful to us if you can leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, because it really does help other medical students find the podcast. And as a thank you for leaving a review, we've got a free on-examination subscription to give away. So that's free access to a med student question bank, which is just ideal for this here now exam season. Uh, So if you'd like to be up for winning a free on-examination subscription, then please leave a review and let us know on social media that you've done so. Uh, There's links to all our Insta, Facebook and Twitter in the description. So tag us and tell us your reviewer username. And uh, hey, whilst you're there, you may as well let us know what you think we should cover later on in the season with the hashtag SharpScratch. Um, we really do appreciate reading all your feedback and your reviews. So that's a free on examination subscription to win. If you leave a review, tag us on social media and tell us your reviewer username. Next time, we're going to be talking about arsehole doctors and how to work well with colleagues that you just can't stand until then goodbye from me goodbye from me goodbye from me and goodbye from me too